thank you for joining us for another episode of Jackman Radio. I am very excited and honored tonight to uh, welcome a legendary director, writer, five-time Emmy award-winning producer, host, storyteller, actor, and um, Canadian. Uh, I'm not Canadian, but my father's from Canada, and we can certainly touch on that. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we have John Barber on the show. John, how are you today? I'm just doing absolutely terrific, and thanks so much for that introduction. The way you described me, it's like I couldn't hold a job, which was <laughs> often true. I had to become sort of a jack-of-all-trades in this business just to survive. Yeah, absolutely. And I was, I was looking at a little bit of, of your background uh, around the 70s, and it's true that you were originally going to be the host of The Gong Show? Yes, I was. That's and, crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it's yeah. Oh, you know, if I'd uh, known you were going to give me such a nice introduction, I would have brought up a copy of my book. If you take a, a break in a minute, I'll just reach over there and grab it and show it to you. The book is called uh, "Your Mother's Not a Virgin," and the subtitle of it is "The Bumpy Life and Times of the Canadian Dropout Who Changed the Face of American Television." And like all of the wonderful things in my life, it's a life that was totally, totally unplanned. I only had one plan in life, and that was to become an American from the time I was a kid. And everything that happened to me, getting real people, which was by far the most successful show in the history of television, the first reality show, getting that on the air was an accident, becoming the accidental writer for Frank Sinatra, for four and a half years, that was an accident. Wow. And then when Jim Garrison tro- chose me over Oliver Stone to be the one to tell his story, you know, in the 10 years following the loss of the Clay Shaw trial, by the way, he did not lose the Clay Shaw trial. He actually won it. What he lost was a conspiracy charge against Clay Shaw. And that's all that the media and our government told us about. So everybody thought that Jim was a nut. But he actually, he actually, in eight minutes, got a conviction for perjury, which we may talk about later. And he actually won the case. So anyway, he chose me over to Oliver to tell his story because in 1970, when I was the original host of the first news show for ABC on Los Angeles, I accidentally picked up Jim Garrison's book. And it's called The Heritage of Stone. Mm. And it was about the Clay Shaw trial. And I learned things I didn't even know. I didn't know that he had to sue Time Life magazine to get the Zapruder film for people to see. There was a doctor named Fink, who was only a forensic pathologist at the autopsy. And it was an autopsy that wasn't performed. He said that admirals and generals in blue suits from the FBI and the CIA stop them from looking at either photographs or x-rays or anything. So if you look in the war report in the 26 volumes, you will not find one. Yeah, they, they were, will, they, me, oh, all you'll find, you find is this cartoon drawing. Right, that's what I was gonna of, say. Of John Kennedy's profile and a, and a drawing of a bullet going through him and then through Connolly. Well, it's all Saturday Night Live nonsense. He solved the case. It is now a current cold case in the Justice Department and everything that is wrong with America now could be solved by opening that case because it unravels 
anything. Anyway, that's where the title of the book came from. Because when I, listen, I'm a storyteller. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. And I just love to tell stories because when I was a kid, it's funny, I asked you when the show started if uh, you had a clean face before this lockdown started. <laughs> <laughs> and this was a result. This shrubbery is a result of being quarantined. Well, me, Partially. I, yeah, I feel like I've been quarantined all my life. I was born in the charity ward of the Salvation Army Hospital. I was abandoned when I was six and I was out on the street. And the thing that kept me going was first of all, hockey, and secondly, going to the movie theaters to see two movies for five cents at the Manor Theater, and then going to the library. And I knew where the library was because it was right across from the police station where I spent most of my time. I was a, rest I was a real troublemaker as a kid because when you come from a broken home and you're looking for attention, you're not looking for attention by playing the violin or the piano or doing something wonderful. You just do something awful. And I did a lot. I snuck into the United States twice. I was deported once when I was 17 and I was deported again when I was 29, but I kept coming back. And in 1942, I was handed my citizenship papers by Senator John Tunney of California. Anyway, if you want me to tell you how I came about the title of the book, because I want don't want to do a, a half-hour monologue here, here with you, because I want to hear your voice. And I'm curious about why you picked me to call to talk to. Um, well, a couple years back, uh, we were in touch. I think I reached out to you when I ordered your um, sequel to the, uh, um, the Jim Garrison tapes, uh, which is called... Um, uh, the American, uh, the American media and the second assassination of president John F. Kennedy. And, um, I was just so blown away after watching that documentary, um, that I wanted to, that let, I think me, that let me tell you something as a former critic, I was a film first person in America to review movies on television. I was 10 years of film critic at Los Angeles magazine and then five years at NBC. So I say this as a critic, not as a writer, producer or anything. The movie you just mentioned is by far the most important documentary ever made in America. It clearly proves that Jim Garrison not only solved the case, but he pointed out the birth and purpose of fake news, which still plagues us today. Now, when I started to make this film, I called a lot of my producer and writer friends in Hollywood. And I said, what's the most important movie ever made in America? Now, if I asked you that, you're probably a film buff, even though you look awfully young. Uh, you probably love old movies. So if I were to ask you, what's the most important movie you ever think you made in this country, what would you say? Uh, probably Citizen Kane off the top of my head. Everybody says it, because <laughs> it is probably the greatest movie ever made in this Yeah, I look a little bit like Orson Welles, I'm told, so. Yes, you do. As a matter of fact, <laughs> as a matter of fact he put on so much weight in his older years, he should have been called Orson Swells. <laughs> well, I'm, but, trying to, I'm trying to lose weight, but uh, he, he, he well, is a large fellow. It, you don't look like you're on his diet, anyway. <laughs> but, uh, in any event, uh, they, uh, they came up with uh, Gone with the Wind. Citizen Kane, of course, number, all great, great movies. Absolutely no question. Every move, 
movie that Stanley Kubrick made. It was an absolutely great movie. Yeah. But not important, just great films. Something important is something that changes the society and improves the society in which we live. Oh, JFK and, then, 1991, Oliver Stone. That, that's it. The only movie that did that because of that, we got the John Kennedy Records Assassination Act passed. Mm. And uh, when Poppy and, Bush was president, which is ironic. That's right. And uh, last October, according to Congre congressional mandates, all the files were supposed to be relieved. But Donald Trump, whoop, he came into the Central Intelligence Agency and we will never see them. That's what I wanted. That was one of the questions I was going to ask you, John. Um, isn't it funny, you know, Trump always talks about how he's fighting the deep state and he's, he's against the deep state, but he can't even go up against the deep state from 57 years ago. So oh, how, is, how is he going to do me, anything about the, the swamp and the deep state now if he can't even release the Kennedy files? Let me tell you something about the deep state. There is no deep state because congressional investigations have proven that the Central Intelligence Agency has taken over literally every aspect of American life and culture since the 1950s. And it began with Project Mockingbird when they took over the entire media. They aided and abetted the murders of John Kennedy, and then they covered them up. They're involved in the military. They're involved in politics. They're involved in religion. They're deeply involved in Hollywood. They're involved in the internet. They own most of the internet. They are, the United States has become the deep state. So yeah. there is no deep state and Donald Trump does not stand a chance because, you know, let me tell you something. I was looking forward a few years ago to having Roger Stone on my show and he was going to come on my show and there was an accident or a plane something or other and he, he couldn't make it. And this is what I wanted to talk about. He was um, Trump's closest friend and advisor for three years. He was a guy who was a braggart and a, a criminal who worked on behalf of doing dirty tricks for Richard Nixon to such an extent, he has a picture of him stenciled on his back. He wrote a book that got widespread publication saying that Lyndon Johnson was the mastermind behind the assassination. He was not, because that's a question I posed to Jim Garrison. Jim Garrison is so smart. He said, I'll never speculate, John. I only give you proof. But I'll speculate on this because he had to distance himself in case they screwed up. And you know that the government can often screw up. And what I wanted to talk to Roger Stone about was in the private moments with Donald Trump. No question they talked about that book. And was Kennedy involved, was Johnson involved with the murder? He probably had knowledge of it, but he distanced himself from the planning. Alan Dulles was the architect of the film. And if we talk about this a little further, I will tell you that Jim Garrison's one speculation, not in the film, came from, did you see Executive Action? I haven't seen that one. I actually just watched for the first time the uh, Warren Beatty one, um, the, uh, the one where he's framed, kind of like Sirhan that came out. Oh, in the, oh you know what? what it was, oh, I'm God. trying to remember the name of it. The, uh, oh, oh, Jesus. Oh, but, what a, I was, off, I was offered the part 
of the, uh, I was offered the part of a major part in that film. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Please. Uh, oh, please remember it. It's <laughs> the, uh... a, a terrific, terrific film. What? Oh, Parallax, Parallax View. View. Parallax Par View. Okay, now, <laughs> uh, the name of the writer-director. He did One Flew Over the Cook. Uh, he did uh, Kill a Mockingbird, one of America's greatest movies. He got killed by accident in a car accident in New York. I can't remember his name. But he, when I was working in the mailroom at Paramount, he was a producer about two years older than me. I'm 18 and he's like 20 and he's a producer already. But he never had a secretary. And I always used to go in his office and he always used to love to talk to me. So eventually he started making movies. Uh, do you remember the movie Clute? Clute, I don't think I ever saw that one. Jane no. Fonda, one of the greatest murder mysteries ever. That was, was, that the, was that part of his trilogy of films where he did all the president's men as well? Yes, he did that. Who is there with you? Your father? Uh, my twin brother, actually. He's my... <laughs> oh, my God. Does he look and weigh as much as you? Yeah, I think so. Maybe okay. if you, he has less okay. hair, so a few pounds have, difference. Have him look up uh, the, the director of Clute. Eric, who's the director uh, of that film? Yeah, and he's also, he also directed one called Clute. Does Jane Fonda play like a, um, yeah, a model like a or... Yeah, a hooker. Okay, a lady of the night. <laughs> yeah, it is a wonderful, the guy never made a bad movie. The most successful yeah. director ever. And, and I'm glad we're having this exchange and don't you cut any of this out. I won't. Leave it all in because it shows that we are absolutely real people. What's his name, Eric? Alan Pacula. Alan Pacula. Pacula. Alan Pacula. Let me tell you a little bit about Alan. I started to become a critic and very, very successful. I was the most widely quoted critic in the United States and uh, probably the most popular in the history of Los Angeles Magazine. Their, their, their circulation doubled because Lucille Ball went public one day and she says, the one thing I look forward to every single month is John Barber's reviews in Los Angeles Magazine. She said, aside from the guys who write my show, who are the best writers in the world, there's no better writer than Johnny Barber and my oh. husband and five. So as soon as she said that, the circulation went crazy. We became friends, really good friends. A lot of, and so in any event, I used to get calls all the time to do parts in movies. And some I did. I mean, I got a call from uh, Captain Kirk. William Shatner? I got a call from William Shatner. He's doing a movie of a week called Prayed for the Wildcat. He said, John, God, I'd lo I love your work. Will you come and do a movie with me? Movie of the week, ABC. And I said, I can't do that, William. I, you know, I'm a critic and it's a conflict of interest. <laughs> he said, who gives a crap? It's Hollywood. Come on. I said, okay, I'll do it only for you and only for one reason. And he said, why? One reason. I said, because my son is crazy about Captain Kirk. And then when we're on the set, I'm going to tell you a story about my son's affection for you. So I will do it for you. Anyway, I do the movie. It's a 90 minute movie and it does pretty well. And I play his boss. And I'm wearing this great jacket. 
but on screen I look better than he does. So he gets bugged and he said, hold it. You had real hair. That- he always wore a wig. Yeah. He said, give me that jacket. So I said, why? He said, we're the same size. Give me the jacket. I'll give you mine. I don't want you to look better than me. I'm the star. I loved him. I just loved him. So I did. And in, in the film, I fire him. And then he takes off on a motorcycle or something. Anyway, when the movie showed on television, my son was glued to the set because his father was working with Captain Kirk. He looked at me, said, oh, dad, how could you fire Captain Kirk? <laughs> so, but I'm going to tell you a cute story about my son. I've known three geniuses in my life. One was, of course, Jim Garrison. And one was a, a Buckminster Fuller, who was a scientist who I spent 90 minutes with one morning on the morning show, who invented the geodesic dome, but he was a genius about everything, and my son. But my son was discovered to be a, a, a genius when he was five years of age at Rio Vista School. I got a call one day from a Chinese American lady who was an educator assigned by the school system to go around looking for geniuses in, in LA schools. She hadn't found any for a couple of weeks, but she found two in one class in one day. One was my son, she said, another was a Chinese girl. And I said, hold it, he's only five. How on earth can you tell a five-year-old is a genius? I mean, it's not like he's like Mozart playing the piano at five years of age, for God's sake. How can you tell? And she said, well, we use symbols and we use arithmetic and questions. I said, what kind of questions can you ask a five-year-old? And she said, well, one of them was, uh, Christopher, what do laughter and tears have in common? And I was stumped. So in any event, I said, thanks so much. I went to school and I picked up my son. And uh, we came home and he sat down with us at the table and have a little bite to eat. And I said, you know, I just got a call from this lady. And she said, you're a genius. And he said, yes, dad, that's what she said. And about this other nice girl in my class. I said, but Christopher, the question was, what do laughter and tears have in common? And he said, dad, simple, emotions. I said, where on earth did you get that? He said, dad, Star Trek. Yeah. There you go. He Roddenberry. Yeah, so he screamed when he heard that. And I said, but that's not the end of it. The only bad habit my son had was sucking his thumb as a kid. And he always said he wanted to have nice teeth like me, and nice shiny white teeth, movie star teeth. I said, well, you can when you get older, and you can go to a a good dentist who can afford some really good dental, dental works and implants, and you can get them. But in the meantime, don't suck your thumb or your teeth won't go out straight enough so that you can have those uh, kind of caps put on. So he sucked it for a couple of more days. And one day we're sitting watching television. Three of us are in bed. We used to have great time in bed watching TV. And he's like this. So I just reach over and I pull it out of his hand, pull it out of his mouth. And he looks at me and he smiles. And he holds up his left hand. He said, Dad, I have an auxiliary thumb. I said, where'd you get that? He said, Star Trek. (laughs) 
Well, anyway, school couldn't teach you that stuff. Yeah, so I don't know. Oh, 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 yeah, we're talking about Alan Pakula. So Alan called and asked me to come down to his office. And he said he'd had this movie with Warren Beatty, and he wanted me to take a look at the part. I think it was a part of the guy that was running for office. Oh, and yeah. I, I was a perfect age because I was just in my mid-40s and everything, and I looked pretty good. And You were suits. very handsome, John. You're still a handsome guy, but you were very uh, handsome. Uh, well, I, I got residue of cuteness left in me. But, <laughs> you know. but in any event, he gave it to me, and I read it, and I said, Alan, I love it, and you know that I'm – you don't know it, but I'm so interested in so much of this stuff that you're talking about. And I know that you're talking about the Warren Report and the assassination, and you're not saying it. And wow, what a terrific film this will make. But I just can't do it. It is a conflict of interest. And that's why I turned it down. I turned, You have no idea how much stuff I turned down. You know, Ray Stark? Ray Stark was the most successful producer in the history of Hollywood. Uh, uh, the Way We Were, Funny Girl, all these fabulous films. He also was a magnificent and huge supportive fan of my film reviews. Just loved them. He used to call me all the time and make comments about them. And uh, he invited me once for lunch. So I went to see him for lunch. And it turned out that my second favorite writer is a guy named Ben Hecht who I patterned my book after, by the way. But do you know who Ben Hecht is? No, it doesn't sound familiar. That means you haven't read my book. I have not read your book yet. Oh, well, shame on you. If you think the movie is good, the book is the best <laughs> book ever written about anybody in show business. I don't care who you're talking about. Well, i got to get a signed <laughs> copy then. Uh, yeah, you, when we're done, you send me the uh, your address, and I'll send you and that brother of yours uh, a copy so they each have your own copy. There are no chapter titles in it. Ben Hecht was the highest paid screenwriter in the history of Hollywood. At 16 years of age, he was born a Jew in Racine, Wisconsin. And he said a reluctant Jew because he didn't realize he was Jewish until he was in the Second World War. And he ran away to Chicago to uh, become a trapeze artist. And he couldn't get a, a job doing that. He ended up working in a newspaper and eventually became the town's leading columnist. He became the co-author of Front Page with Charles MacArthur and became, wrote the first gangster film, Scarface. Stories in his book are phenomenal. And he wrote Gone with the Wind in 30 days and never read the book, in 12 days and never read the book. Wow. As you might recall, if you're a fan of movies, um, the, the film uh, Gone with the Wind was shut down in the beginning by Daryl Zanuck. He didn't have his, he didn't have his Olivia de Havilland yet, he didn't have his Scarlett O'Hara. And Clark Gable wanted the first director fired. And the reason he wanted fired before Clark became a major movie star, he was, uh, he was a date for some guys, okay? And one of the guys he dated became the director of the movie. And he didn't want it known, oh, so he had the guy fired. Okay, that's a little known story that's told in the book. Anyway, 
Selznick shuts them down. He calls Ben Hecht and he says, uh, Ben, I need you to get out here. So he goes out there and Ben said, I haven't read Margaret Mitchell's book. I have no interest in that book. He said, my God, I brought you here to, to write the script for God's sake. So Ben said, well, you have readers, don't you? And he said, sure, we have readers. They write a synopsis. He said, give me the synopsis. He gave him the synopsis, 30 pages. And from that, Ben Hecht wrote the, wrote the most successful movie in history, Gone with wow. the Wind. I think it's, yeah, I think it's too bad now that we have people who want to try and stop people from watching a film like Gone with the Wind or... Oh, it's, um, abs it, it, it's, it, abs it's absolute and total, utter nonsense. I mean, yeah. first, first of all... Cancel culture nonsense and revisionist it, stuff. And it, that's, it, uh, it, it's a big disservice to young people and, it's, and to, uh, to just the, the history of, of film and the history of our culture, really. And the you know? history of the country. It's a monument. I said, oh boy, I have such great stuff written on... Yeah. People should go to my Facebook page. They will read by far the funniest jokes about America today and Trump and Biden and all the rest. Oh, of it. it's it's very colorful. Okay, they I follow will, it. <laughs> okay, so there's something up there in which I talk about this nonsense. Now, listen, I struggled for years and years. After being arrested, the first time I was deported in chains for crying out loud. If you want, I can tell you a very, very funny story about, uh, about that. And I, I had, I learned more about American law by spending our, uh, days and weeks and months in the University of Toronto Law Library. I know as much about immigration law in the United States as anybody on the planet. And I had to work hard to get the U.S. government to reinterpret a law that could not be changed. Because if you are accused of two felonies over the age of 16, you can never be admitted legally to the United States. Right. But I, had, I, I had a bunch of them. So how do I get them when you can't change the law to reinterpret it? Now, one of the things that you can do, you can make a major contribution to the culture. For example, after the Second World War, the US government hired 5,000 Nazis, known convicted Nazis under Operation Paperclip, brought them to the United States, built the space program, and built the Central Intelligence Agency. We live in a Nazified culture to this day. But anyway, back to the business of that. Uh, who, 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 well, I wanted to. I wanted did want to touch on Jim Garrison. Um, um, okay. So okay. your your film, uh, the first one you did, the Jim Garrison tapes, that was in 1992 that that came out. That that was in 1992. Yeah. Can you go in a little bit to your you know relationship with Jim Garrison and and uh, um, I know, would so I would love to, and I'm going to tell you a story that very people, very few people will know about, because of the character of the quality of Jim Garrison. My mentor when I started as a stand-up comic was Red Fox. You know, Red Fox was the filthiest comic in America, but he, he became my mentor. Wow. Because he was one of the classiest and funniest men I know. And one of Jim Garrison's favorite quotes was a line from, Jim, from Red Fox. And that line was, heroes ain't born, they're cornered. So in any event, I became cornered by accidentally talking to Jim Garrison. 
and Jim Garrison became cornered by accidentally talking to someone who was on the Warren Report who told Garrison in private that Lee Harvey Oswald could have not fired that gun. Hale because, Boggs. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, Hale Boggs. I'm glad you mentioned the name. And the, for years, he said it was Senator Long in order to protect Hale Boggs. And we'll get to Hale Boggs in, in a minute. So in any event, what happened? I'm hosting the M show. I pick up this book, Heritage of Stone. It's in Edmunds Bookstore on Hollywood Boulevard across from Musso Frank. And I don't leave the store. I read it. My God, look at all this stuff I'm learning. So the next morning, immediately, I get up 6 o'clock in the morning. It's 9 o'clock in New Orleans. I call the DA's office. And I expect to hear a secretary answer in this beautiful bass baritone voice. And he says, hello. And it's, I said, hi, this is uh, John Barber in Los Angeles. Could I speak to Mr. Garrison? He said, speaking. And I got all excited. I said, oh, Mr. Garrison, Mr. Garrison, thank God it's you. I was in Edmund's bookstore yesterday and I accidentally picked up and read your book. And he laughed. He said, oh, John, you must be the second one. I only sold two copies. <laughs> I love yeah, the sense of humor. <laughs> Unbelievable sense of humor. Actually, it was a major bestseller. So I tried to talk him into coming on to the show. And I said, we're live. And I'll talk to you for a half an hour. Then I'm going to up the phones for an hour. We're the first show in the country to open up a new show to guests. And people will just flood to talk to you. He said, John, you'll never get away with it. I said, I certainly will. I got the number one show. I just had Governor Reagan on, Cesar Chavez, Muhammad Ali, all the biggies are on the show. Highest rated show that ABC has as a news show. And he said, they will never let me on any show. And I said, listen, I'll get all the reservations made. We don't, we won't even uh, announce it. You just show up. And he agreed to do it. So we started chatting. And he said, John, you know, it is 1970. It's six years after the Warren Report. Do you know that the Harris polls just concluded 82% of all Americans do not believe Oswald either did it or acted alone? And I said, my God. Mr. Garrison, if that's true, why are people out on the streets? He said, well, you didn't see the second question in the poll. I said, what's the second question? He said, the second question is, would you like to see a further deeper investigation that involves questioning and investigating the CIA and the FBI? And I said, and? He said, guess how many people said they wanted that? I said, how many? He said, 20%. I said, you're kidding. He said, what does that say to us about Americans? Well, about, what does it say about us? And this is where the title came from. I just blurted it out. Well, I'll tell you something, Mr. Garrison. I know what it says to me. I know what my mother and father did in the rumble seat of the car because they had rumble seats then or on the, uh, on the poker table or in the alley or in the bedroom. I know what they did to concede me. But don't ever tell me my mother's not a virgin. Well, he started to howl. And he said, you know what? That's almost a quote from my favorite American writer, uh, Mark Twain. Mark Twain said, it's easier to fool people 
than to convince them they have been fooled. And John, we've been fooled since November 22nd, 1963, so I booked them. The next day I was fired and he was canceled. Now look, wow. at, I never thought, I swear, I, this is a quote of Red Fox. When he was always trying to tell me something was true, he would say, I swear to God and three other white men. So I swear to God and three other white men. I had no idea it had anything to do with Jim Garrison or conspiracies. It's show business I'm in. Right. You know, I'm hired and fired all the time. I work one week there. I'm an opening act for Robert Goulet one week. I'm an opening act for Bobby Darren another week. I'm on Dean Martin's show one week. And, it, and that's it. It's over with. So I never thought anything about it. And I ended up becoming a... Um, the movie critic on Channel 11, another uh, show. And that's how my career survived, becoming the, a film critic. And I, I, I only spoke to him twice after that. Strangely enough, when Sinatra had me on, because I had had a career-long feud with Johnny Carson, a really despicable, insecure, alcoholic, unspeakably cruel, but a very good monologist for the opening of the show. So I can separate the talent from the man. The first time I encountered him, um, I had been on the Merv Griffin show two or three times. I'd become a star on Merv's show. Not a star, but known. And Johnny Carson never put anybody on who hadn't made it somewhere else, ever. He never started anybody at the bottom. So they called to book me on the show. And I flew in from Los Angeles, flew into New York, went to the hotel, got a call that I was to come in the next morning. And guess what the date was? November the 22nd, 1963? No. It was June the 8th, 1968. Oh, wow. The day, no they, shot, the day they shot Bobby. Yeah. So I went in and I said, you can't do a show. You can't do a show. They just killed the brother of the president of the United States. And he says, well, the Americans need to be entertained. They will not be entertained. Somebody had, you know, my hero was Jack Parr. Jack Parr was by far the best late night talk show host. And for a number of reasons, first of all, he was funnier and wittier and more human than Carson. But he was an interesting person because he was interested in people. Carson wasn't interested in anything but himself. And so he says, if you don't do the show, you'll never do the show. Mm. Now, I thought, you know, if you do Carson and he invites you to sit down, you're anointed by the king. Mm -hmm. And you become successful. I see it happen to my friend Rodney Dangerfield and Steve Martin and a few other people, people I knew really well. And I just, I couldn't do it. The worst mistake I made in my life was agreeing to do it. And I wish I had just walked down and told the audience, I'm not going to do a monologue. I want to talk to you about your country. Yeah. And that's what was in my heart, but I couldn't do it. So certainly I didn't get any laughs. And then I tried to get off stage. And Carson called me over because one of his acts canceled. They were smart. So I had to sit next to him. He smelled exactly like my mother. He was absolutely stone drunk mm. and watery blue eyes. And just, 
And from that point on, I had nothing but problems with him. And I ended up being the critic on the network where he was. And he always wanted, wow. tried to get me fired unsuccessfully. And, and Francis got a kick out of the fact that we had this feud behind the stages, behind camera. Very so, vindictive. Yeah. So when Sinatra got to host The Tonight Show one night, he called me. He said, you're my first guest. Here's Johnny Barber, he said. <laughs> so... He tried to sabotage me, Carson still, but I'm not going to get into that story. But after he did the he same thing to Tiny Tim after he had so much success having Tiny Tim on with the wedding. And, and uh, he, he, he didn't have him on again for, I think, yeah. in the early 70s till maybe the late 80s, or early 90s, maybe one more yes. time. There was another great Italian comic who was always on his show. Always on his show. Oh, I wish I could remember his name. He was a real close friend. He's still alive in his 80s, still performing. He wrote a book that wasn't successful, but he told the story about being next to Johnny Carson in a urinal. Let me tell you, when they, they used to have uh, stag roast at the Friars Club, they did not allow women. They were by far the funniest, filthiest things you ever saw. And, uh, and, Uncle Milty Burrow was the chairman of the Friars. He had, whenever they had, they had three major stars there from Sinatra and Howard Cosell on, in which he said, you're going to be the first guy on the Diaz. And one of the reasons they liked me is because I resembled Bob Newhart. I looked real Goyesha because most of them were all Jewish, for crying out loud. And I only talked. I never did like I was doing jokes. I just talked and and I was the funniest one every time on that dais because I was the filthiest. Now, I'm not going to tell you what any of those jokes are. One or two, one or two of them are, are in, in the book. But anyway, when Carson came on, he climbed up on the stage and the champagne bucket was there honoring Sinatra. And he literally pissed in the champagne bucket. Oh, really? to cheers, to cheers from everybody and laughter. And that, he didn't say a word. That's all they had to say was that, okay? That's the kind of person he was. Anyway, the Italian comic <clears throat> had been on a show all the time. So he meets Carson afterwards because he's attending. The Italian comic's gonna perform, he's attending. Carson's at the urinal and the guy's next to him and, 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 and then uh, the Italian comic says to him, Johnny, do you really think that was funny? And Carson's urinating turnarounds and he pisses all over the guy. Oh. And the guy was never, never on the show again, never on the show. So in any event, when I did the show, there's a line. I, I was setting up a joke. And, the joke, and I, to set up the joke, I was saying, you know, in, the, in, in America today, if you're a comic, you don't have to write jokes about, about politicians. All you have to do is quote them. <laughs> yeah. And, and to give you a, a perfect example, yesterday afternoon, did you happen to see Donald Trump's uh, press conference? Uh, or, I, or, I saw some of it, yeah. And then I saw his Axios interview too that he did with the Australian reporter. Yeah, that's the only guy who's done a good job with him. But anyway, it's not a, deep, a, a press conference. It's a deep press conference. Anyway, he said, 
he said in his way that millions of Americans are about to be evicted by the Chinese. So I wrote, I quoted him and said, I didn't know that many Americans lived in China. And you know, all you have to do is quote these people to show you what nincompoops they are. Yeah, a lot of them are not very intelligent. I mean, you and, know. And yeah. I, I'll tell you, I hate to interrupt. I, I tell you, I never ever express an opinion. If you go to my site, if I have a question about something, I will pose it, uh, if I have an opinion, I never say it's an opinion, I pose it as a question to make people think. Right. Okay, so um, that's, what, that's what I do. The, the other day, again, I quoted him. I said, absolute proof that Vladimir Putin is a liar. He called Donald Trump a genius. <laughs> Look, John, he said really nice things about me, okay? He said I was a stable genius. He said, <laughs> he said really nice things. Yeah, but the same, <laughs> the same about Joe Biden. I think Joe Biden is making a god-awful mistake picking a woman. You know why? Why? Because one of them has to have some balls. <laughs> or, or some brains. Uh, they, so, they, so, they, so there you go. And in the beginning of this uh, pandemic, or whatever you want to call it, I said, if you want to avoid crowds, just sign up for a Joe Biden rally. Absolutely. He was here yeah. in my town. There was like 30 people at the same venue that uh, Bernie did an event at where there was almost a thousand. Yes. And, and again, Bernie made, it the, uh, made the most major blunder when he caved into Hillary Clinton in 2016. Absolutely. He, he totally sold out. Well, yeah, he had as many more support as many adult supporters as Trump, but he had all the young people. Mm -hmm. And why he caved into her is totally beyond me. He could have run as an independent third party candidate because we don't need a third party. We need a second party. Yeah. We don't have one. Well, look, John, I wanted to, li I wanted to live to see my, my uh, grandkids graduate from college. That's why I endorsed, okay? That's, that's, why, that's why I did that, okay? Okay, so anyway, I called Mr. Garrison. I, the line, uh, Garrison called me and asked me. I had a, a, a straight line, and the straight line was Watergate is something that may have just put America on the brink of democracy. It's just, it's, it got a hand. A huge hand. So Jim called me and he said, can I use it? I said, you can have it, anything you want. Then uh, at the height of the Vietnam War, I called him again just to talk about it. He mentioned three or four names involved with, uh, it was Watergate break-in, I called him about, not the Vietnam War. He mentioned three or four names that were involved in the assassination were involved in the Watergate break-in. Oh my God, how interesting. So in, uh, when I got real people on the air in 1979, in a year it was the most watched show in the history of television. Half of every television set in this country was tuned into my show. And we changed laws. We did more to improve America and its laws in three years than 60 Minutes did in 35 years. So that uh, when uh, George Slaughter got the effort to do, need to do a show called Speak Up America, he kept asking me to come on and help him do stories. I said, no, I'm, I was now trying to salvage real people. First of all, he did this god awful thing hiring a 12-year-old kid, Peter Billingsley, to be one of the hosts. 
And you oh, know why? Christ- I hired- yeah, he was in a Christmas story. Yeah, and you know why I hired him? Why because was he related he said, to him? No, he said he's a white Rodney Allen Rippy. Remember oh. Rodney Allen Rippy, the young black child actor in the Jeffersons, or one of those things? Uh, I'm sure if I saw him, I'd recognize. Yeah, yeah, him. you'd know, you'd know who he is. And George thought that NBC was going to rush to him and buy a sitcom. And I said, "You're like a piranha. You're feeding off of our own show. You're just." And the fist fight, the fist fight started. I was working 20 hours a day, never spent a minute. I wasn't working. For the first three years, almost every hour, all of the editing and writing was supervised by me. I was the storyteller. So anyway, you got a chance to do this thing called Speak Up America. And he said, uh, come and help me. I said, no, I'm staying away from you and you stay away from the show. You do anything you want. I'm gonna, he ended up doing a series called Real Kids. It lasted one episode. Everything, wow. he cannot do anything by himself. He had and owned one of the three great comedy shows in the history of uh, American television. It was called Laugh-In, but he didn't create it. An alcoholic Englishman named Digby Wolf created it. The stories are in the book, but he's a smart businessman and George ended up owning it. Mm. And you look at any show, he's got nothing that's worthwhile. He is still running now on Amazon on the first three years of how good real people was which he would have never had without me. And I don't get a cent from that because yeah, when, I signed my, when I signed my contract, those platforms didn't exist, but it doesn't bother me. I am so thrilled with the stuff that I'm able to do now. So in any event, this is what happened. I read on the 13th page of the LA Times about the House Select Committee and assassinations, concluding four shots had been fired. They discovered a Dictabelt machine by a, a, a Dictabelt recording device on the waist of a motorcycle officer, H.B. McLean, recorded more than four shots. So they had no choice except to conclude there had to be a conspiracy, even though Oswald, they said, was involved. So there had to be a conspiracy in John Kennedy's death and Martin Luther King's death. And it's proven beyond an irrefutable fact that it was impossible for Sirhan to have shot Bobby Kennedy because I was part of the team in 1982 trying to save Thomas Taguchi as the coroner of L.A. because his autopsy showed that the fatal shot was fired right behind the ear and probably by a guy named Thane Cesar who retired to the Philippines and died a year or so ago and wanted $25,000 from Robert Kennedy Jr. to tell him his story. And Robert Kennedy Jr. wouldn't pay him the $25,000. I would have paid it in a heartbeat. Okay, so in any event, I called Mr. Garrison, asked me if he's vindicated. And again, this is how he replied. John, I feel like a blind man has gotten a very small trophy in a very dark room. Only I know I got it. So I said, well, now, Mr. Garrison, I'm going to tell your story. I got the number one show in the country. And George Slaughter that has this other show called Speak Up. I'm going to tell your story on Speak Up. I'm going to tell it for nothing. I'm not going to take a fee of any sort. It's just going to be your story. I'm coming to New York Orleans. So on September 5th, I remember the date. I went down 
three and a half hours, put them on television. Oh my God, the most thrilling, frightening, inspiring three hours I ever spent in my life. And you know, sometimes people say things to you, in spite of all the factual information he gave to me, just randomly he said to me, I asked him because you know, he was an FBI agent. He was in the military. He was at Dachau when they liberated that death camp from the Nazis. It was the only picture in the office, lest we forget. I said, you know, and you're an independent politician. You don't ask people for contributions or anything. Nobody knows really where you are. How, what makes you think you can take on the federal government? He laughed. He said, John, I think as a kid, I must have seen one too many Frank Capra movies. <laughs> well, that's it. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. And what, what people don't remember about that movie, Jimmy Stewart lost. He did not win. Because you know why? He lost. Why? Claude, Claude Rains, the arch enemy, confessed. It was like one of these bad uh, TV court shows, for God's sake. He confessed. <laughs> or something. Yeah, yeah, so uh, good did not triumph. Good uh, it, evil just caved in. But good didn't triumph. It has never triumphed in America. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of why we are where we are today now. Where okay, we, so we have uh, people like Acosta who, who cut the deal for Epstein. Um, we don't have we don't have people in in the media or the legal realm or the political realm that have the guts like someone like Jim Garrison had just being a DA down in New Orleans um, to to look into this. I mean, he, you know, he, he it's said, not well, existent in America. You know, yeah, and, and it's I, I, was, I agree. I think it stems back to the Kennedy assassination. And no, no question about that. So I'm going to tell you what happened and why it all ended. Um, so I went down there and I, and one of the questions I asked him, how many shooters do you think there were? He said, there were three teams, two in the front, grassy knoll area, nobody in the book depository, somebody probably in the Daltex building. Ordinarily, he said, there are two people on a team, but this is their most important kill. So they probably had radio people. So he said, that's nine men. Okay. And so... I then said to him, well, how many people in America do you think actually knew that he would not come out of Dilly Plaza alive? And he said, well, John, all this is secret on a need-to-know basis, but speculating the people that the CIA, the FBI, and the media. And he said, by the way, the media was on board before the assassination. And the reason they were on board before the assassination is they had to spread the fiction of three shots and Lee Harvey Oswald before reality set in. And of course, that turned out to be CBS, as you saw in the film. So in any event, I edited it and put it together. Well, it's a 16-minute story, so it's too long for one show, but it becomes a two-parter. So in the first part, it's Jim Garrison with that great face of his looking into camera saying, Lee Harvey Oswald shot no one at all. He had nothing to do with the assassination. And of course, he produces a paraffin test to prove that he did not fire a rifle. And then there are documents that show that Jaber Hoover lied about the paraffin test. Absolutely. So, this okay, the same. so, so uh, let, me fin let me finish it. So in any event, the audience, you, you know, nobody, we never announced we were doing the story because I promise we keep it quiet. <clears throat> It was like people found out the Pope 
or the president was going to be on stage. You could not get into our theater to listen to Garrison. People were on the edge of their seat. They were leaning forward. They were spellbound and they were cheering, absolutely cheering. It was like a Frank Capra movie. So now I had to do the second part. Now I was having a home rebuilt, so I couldn't be on stage for the second part. And in the second part, I, I had the host was a was a, a former child evangelist named Marjorie Gartner. And the question that I had him ask was, Mr. Garrison, how many shooters do you think there were? So I anyway, I'm at home with my wife and my son, not while our house is being rebuilt, and the story starts. Huge applause. And then up comes in the middle of the story, and the audience is again cheering and spellbound again. And then they cut to Marjo Gartner, and he says, Mr. Garrison, how many uh, shooters were there? And that quickly, Jim Garrison pops up on screen and says, 32. Uh. And then my phone rings, and it's George Slaughter cackling with glee at how he destroyed Jim Garrison and called him a nutcase. And I started screaming at him. Now, we didn't have cell phones at that time. We had answering machines. And he was accidentally recorded on my answering machine. So I slammed down the phone telling him that I, I'm going to join a lawsuit against you and NBC, we're going to own you. Garrison's going to own you. And I slammed on the phone. I called New Orleans and I'm bawling. First time in my life. I never even cried. I cried once as a child. I bawled as an adult now because what Schlatter had done to this wonderful man. And guess who calms me down? It's Jim Garrison. He said, John, 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 stop. If I sued everyone who maligned me, I would never see my five children. I would never see my law office. He said, we love your show. Just send me a real people t-shirt. That's what he said. And then he said, I'm going to do you a favor. I'll give you the name of the fake Oswald and the prison that he's in. You send him a fake t-shirt and he will tell you his story. Oh, I promise. Boy. I mean, that's how wonderful he was. So yeah, it just is like water on a duck. Yes. And then I went into the office the next day. George Slaughter used to be a bouncer at Ciro's nightclub. And he was one of the strong men for Mae West. And for the first two years, I was never happier than working with him because he knew he didn't know how to do this show. So John Barber ran it. But once it became a success, he had the same problem with me as he had with Rowan and Martin when it became known as Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. He got so jealous, he sued them and destroyed his own show. That successful show lasted three years. It could have lasted forever. And real people only lasted for three years. I almost got into a fist fight with him. I was so enraged. I mean, he was three times as big as, big as me. And, the, the, and my best friend at the time was Hal Parrott's daughter. Her name is Donna Parrott. As you saw in the movie, what she was with me when we were filming Garrison. Well, he had called her the day he saw my second edit, brought her in at midnight to re-edit, to show Garrison to be an absolute idiot. She was in the office and began crying and sobbing and apologizing to me. And I said, how can you be a part of what you just did? Her job was more important. It's like all these people that gave in to Donald Trump. All of these people who came in, 
They'd rather be around somebody important and around somebody decent or be decent themselves. Just people. You know, I said this years ago when I was a critic. People asked me what I really thought of movies. And I said, well, actually, movies are like all the people I meet. They say, what's that? I said, 99% of them are a piece of shit. <laughs> I said, but the other 1% is the fertilizer. Yeah, It makes true. sitting through that one person, like a Jim Garrison, or that one movie that makes the art worthwhile. And that's how I feel. Most people are absolute shit. Well, a lot part. of people. There's still some good people out there, man. Oh my God! There's I must tell you, there are tons. Of, let me tell you, tell you to one thing cute that you'll like. First of all, when this pandemic started, I have a very wealthy woman friend in town. Husband's very rich. Spends all his time in the poker parlors, but can't go in anymore because they're re-shutting down. About a month and a half ago, she sent me the greatest picture. She had converted one of the large rooms in her house into a poker palace, built, a, built an extra large table so could, there could be six feet of distancing. And her husband and her, his five cronies were there playing poker. And guess what they were playing poker for? For what? Rolls of toilet paper. <laughs> The room was filled with mounds and mounds of toilet paper. Now, you said something early on that reminded me of the funniest thing I, I got. It was sent by a very beautiful blonde girl back in Boston. It's a picture taken in Vegas of the Strip. It's a gorgeous blonde, obviously hooker, with uh, real tight shorts that were fitted by a gynecologist and sort of a cellophane top that was almost see-through. Gorgeous, and she's leading in, leaning into a Cadillac convertible. And she's saying, anything you want for 50 bucks. And he leans back and he said, can you cut hair? <laughs> so I had it cut and it looks pretty good, doesn't it? It does, so they, yeah. so we they, can chop. So, so they, there you go. So if you've had any, any last questions or anything, I'm yeah. sorry if I did more than a half an hour. No, that's, no, I appreciate your time, John. That's perfectly fine. Yeah, we're, we're coming up on about an hour, and I guess I just – Are you uh, kidding? Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh <laughs> um, my. I guess I would just – you know, earlier you, you didn't seem too optimistic about um, – uh, the the future with the the Kennedy case and really with the state of our country. I mean, what, where do you where do you think we're gonna we're we're heading from here from where you we are with what? Trump and and just the state of our country and whether it be the media and just how you know just our culture. Well, I mean, do you mind if I read this? Yeah, do you, it, sure. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to use a naughty word, and I don't like to use a naughty word. And I, I and you know I. Mark Twain said if voting made a difference, they wouldn't let us do it. So obviously it doesn't make any difference, you know? So I'm sort of neutral about this because I think the, the country is absolutely and totally beyond repair. I'm gonna tell you a little truth about something. That all of the disaster that has befallen, let's take a look at this. If you look at Fox News, they concentrate on what's happening in Portland and point out how horrible the protesters are, right? Now yeah, you go yeah. over to MSNBC and they focus on the same pictures and they concentrate on how horrible that Trump's brown shirts are. 
But you know what? They have us by the eyeballs. In, in the magic world, it's called fainting. It's called bait and switch. Because while we're focusing on this, those, while we're focusing on the bottom where we'll never change, those at the top are making billions as you and I speak. It is the greatest financial ripoff of the middle class and the poor in the history of this country, and no one's talking about it. Now, I'll point out how obvious this is. Ever since the murder of Martin Luther King, when the entire country burned down, and then in Los Angeles, the beating of Rodney King, and Watts burned down, and then the murder of George Floyd, and again, America started to burn down. If you take all of the emotional and financial damage done to the United States of America by all of these rioters, it is not 5%, not 5% of what the 1% did in 2008 when they deliberately crashed the economy and stole millions of people's homes, including mine. My, I had a $900,000 home that was taken away illegally by the Bank of America. $900,000. And, and there were hundreds of crooks and Wall Streeters identified as criminals. Not one was arrested or went to jail. Now, you may not remember the savings and loan scandal under Bush, when Bush's brother was involved with the massive savings and loan scandal. I'm, I'm familiar with it, yeah, with the um, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood were involved, and then there was a, yeah. a bank a bank of credit, um, what were they that, called, the BCCI. That, that's it, and, and, and Bush's, Bush's brother was involved. A hundred prominent people went to prison, a hundred. But that doesn't happen anymore in America. No. No. And it will never happen. Okay, so knowing, and, and I'll tell you, there was a Harvard economist in 2008 said, if you took the trillions of dollars that went to Chrysler, look at if you can't sell a goddamn car, go out of business. That's free enterprise, okay? Right. Instead of being bailed out. Okay, so if you took all the trillions that went to Lehman Brothers, went to Goldman Sachs, went to Bank of America, Wells Fargo, AIG. Yes. And you distributed that amongst Americans over 18 years of age who were born here. Every single American would have $465,000. How quickly would that depression or recession be resolved? Because they give you a check $465,000 and you have to spend it all in America by putting half of it into an American bank buying an American car, buying only American product. It's over with. And the only decent candidate in this last year, aside from Tulsi Gabbard. I worked I for Tulsi. I love Tulsi. I know her. Yeah, okay. So then you should, when we're done, you go to John Barber's open letter to Joe Rogan. I put it up two days ago on YouTube. And you post it along with this interview. People should see it. Because... Joe Rogan went from supporting Dulcie Cabard now to supporting Donald Trump. And I said to him, how do you go from Gloria Steinem to Gomer Pyle? I mean, you know, so, but in any event, watch it. it it's very, very Wait, he, he endorsed Donald Trump, Joe Rogan did? Yes, 
He spent three hours bashing Biden. You, you watch what I say. And you know, I thought a lot of the Trump lovers would hate me. They agreed with me. They oh, agreed. With me. Yeah, we can, so, we can bash Joe Biden, but we also have to be honest about Donald Trump too. I mean, yeah, you know. Well, uh, listen, you know, Biden can bash himself, but Trump can bash himself worse, you know. <laughs> but in any event, this, this is my thought about, I was sitting in the okay. doctor's office today. I, All right, I, so we'll close with this with, with this um, written thing from John. Yeah, it's on my Facebook. And I said, the new American shoot for the moonshot. Change presidents in November. Quote, one small step for America. Change the whole fucking totally corrupt inhuman system, beginning with trashing a central intelligence agency and blowing them to the wind as John Kennedy was about to do. Quote, one giant leap for mankind. Wow, there you go. Yeah, that pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? It absolutely does. But you know what? I, the reason I have hope for the future, I don't know that I have hope for America, but I have hope, have hope for me because I can't live without hope. That's what keeps us going, absolutely. Yes, I mean, you can't live without it. And yet, I'll let me leave you with two, two things. First of all, it'll be wonderful when each and every one of us can go back to work, except Congress. Now, do you know what tomorrow is? Tomorrow, uh, well, or today or tomorrow was the dropping of one of the nukes in Japan. No, you know what tomorrow is? It's another day. Oh, and you yes. Know what it, and you know what another day is? Another day is another chance to do good. So that's all I have to say. But I'd love to come back and tell you some show business stories that are really funny. I would, I would, I would love to talk movies with you. I'm a huge movie guy. Um, my favorite actor is uh, a fellow who, who the director of On the Waterfront said gave the best audition at the, uh, one of the New York film schools. You know who that might be? Brando? No, not not Brando. He's compared to he was the Brando of the 1980s, called Ste by a lot. Steiger, uh, Mickey Rourke. Oh yeah, you know Mickey Rourke was phenomenal in Diner. Yes, but he made a dreadful mistake of having his face rebuilt rather than his character. <laughs> yeah, he. No, I I love actors. Uh, do you know? Uh, uh, to me, the greatest movie actor of all time is unquestionably Cary Grant. There was nothing that Cary could not do. Well, didn't he end up getting big in the psychedelics and to treat depression and, and yes. some problems? Oh, yes, he was the one that introduced LSD to America. And you know why? When he got to be 50 years of age, his name was Archie Leach. Right. Poor English kid. He's from England, yeah. 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 And and uh, uh, got into burlesque when he was 14. But in any events, he said, I'm 50 and I'm Archie Leach, but I want to be Cary Grant. He wanted to be like the guy on the screen, but he couldn't be. So he went to the right. psychiatrist and the wow. psychiatrist started to get into his life with LSD. And he went, on the, he went to the Saturday Evening Post and wrote these glorious stories about the power and the greatness of LSD. And then... America swamped because Cary Grant started it. Cary Grant. But 
he was a great actor. The first actor to earn a million dollars as an actor. Guess who that was? Was it Cary Grant? No. Uh, Claude, well, Rains. Claude Rains. Claude Rains. Yes. When, when, when was that? Uh, Anthony and Cleopatra. First okay. actor to earn a million dollars. Wow. And to me, the potentially the most exciting and greatest potential actor in movies would have been Richard Burton if he hadn't become a celebrity by marrying Liz Taylor. I saw him in England on the stage. In Nobody could come close to Richard Burton. Yeah, just, I, just I like uh, Gary Oldman a lot too. I mean, his, his turn oh. as Oswald was incredible. I mean, I'm sure you not, know our Oliver Stone. <laughs> yeah, not only that, how about The Professional? Yep, oh yeah, with oh, Natalie my, Portman. Oh yeah. my God. He was off the chains in that movie. <laughs> yeah, he was. We'll do that some other time. Anyway, send me send me a link after this is done so that I can post it. Okay. I will absolutely. Thank you so much, John. And you can find um, you you're on Facebook. You you have a YouTube channel that you've uh, put up again, and you also it's johnbarbersworld.com. Why Why are you saying I put it up again? Well, I was reading you. Well, I, I don't. We don't Go need ahead. to get into. We don't need to get into it all right now. You got screwed over yeah. by somebody that you were working with that you thought was your friend who took it down, and now you've got to go through all the stuff and yeah. repost it's coming it. Back to, strange thing is, it's coming back up better than ever because in going back and relooking for the film files, I found stuff I did not even know I had. Right. Eight minutes with Thomas Noguchi. I can't wait to see that. Oh my God! I can't wait. To see he's that. still around, isn't he? In his nineties yeah. now? Yeah, he's and the only painting I have in my house is a watercolor by Thomas Noguchi. Wow! And That's once in beautiful. a while, it sends me an uh, an email. The stuff I found is just phenomenal, and I'm getting so much help from so many different sources. So. I like the Beatles say with little help from my friends. Absolutely. Well, hey, John, keep up the good work, man. I'm inspired by you and, and I appreciate all that you've done and that you continue to do. And uh, well, we'll have you on again sometime. Thank you so much. Best all right. Okay. Best take time. care. Bye.